But there you go. Easter Sunday. Isn't it an exciting day? We have celebrated Good Friday. It's always a strange celebration to celebrate the crucifixion of our God. And yet there is nothing mixed emotionally about Resurrection Sunday. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Asked the angel. He is not here. He is risen. Yeah, he is. That was a test. And it is not the last one. On Sunday of that first Easter, the hopeless, confused pain of the crucifixion gives way to a bewildered joy for the disciples. Hope unlooked for and unexpected. To discover hope when you thought all hope was lost. Perhaps that is the sweetest kind of celebration. It carries a particularly poetic kind of sweetness. We make movies about it, don't we? This is, this is the sun breaking on the Hornberg at Helm's Deep as Gandalf rides over the hill. Yeah, it is. This is the arrival of hope unexpected. It's, it's my life at the present when I had ceased to dare hope and yet it has happened. The mullet has come back in. I never thought that I would live to see the day. This is the big one. It's the central celebration of the Christian year because Jesus has conquered death. The, the resurrection is one of the most awkward and surprising facts of history and a fact of history it is for the many who don't know what to do with it, but we know that it happened. We have the New Testament accounts of the resurrection, eyewitness accounts written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of eyewitnesses, testifying that they saw a dead man walking, that they met him, that they put their finger in his side. Uh, throughout history, there have been so many attempts at debunking the resurrection precisely because it can't be disproved. That Jesus got up again is a certainty, and so some have argued, no, the, he wasn't dead, he had fainted. Of course, it's still rather impressive for a man who has been crucified and stabbed through the heart with a spear and put into a tomb for three days to get up again and roll an enormous stone away to defeat two Roman centurions standing on duty outside of the tomb on pain of death, and then to go and convince hundreds and hundreds of people that he was doing just fine, thank you. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the point of it all. As we heard on Friday, Jesus knew full well what he was doing when he went to the cross. He went through with the sufferings of the cross for the sheep. That's what we heard on Friday, in order to rescue us and to give us his hope. His hope. And so what are we to do with this resurrection of Jesus? How should we understand it? What should we take from it? In writing to the church in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul brought their attention to the hope which the resurrection brings. Let's read from Ephesians chapter 1. It's the opening of his letter, and so the Apostle Paul prays for the church to whom he is writing, but I think we can use them as a stand-in for everyone. This is his prayer for us all. 
Ephesians 1.16 begins, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Today's sermon is a circle. We're going to begin and end at the same place. But having done the lap, I hope is, my hope is that our second visit to our place of beginning is made all the richer. And so let's begin at the place where we will also end. There is a hope to which God has called us. There is a hope to which God has called us. The apostle writes... His prayer is that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? Let's pull a few things out there. Chief among the things that God intends to accomplish in your life. This is true for you. This is true for me. This is true for everyone, everywhere. Is to provide you with a hope. A hope. As Christians, our ultimate hope is that we will live with God forever in a world made new. That we will participate in the resurrection from the dead. That is our highest hope. We hope that the effects of sin and death have been defeated by Jesus and that he can share his victory with us. And God is calling you to share in this hope. That's what he wants to give you. We know when the Apostle Paul talks about hope, he has a very specific meaning. For him, hope is a thing that you are certain of but don't have yet. It's not wishful thinking. It's not, I hope my hair will grow back. (laughs) It's not going to happen. That's not how life works in this world. Actually, I've been seeing some photos on the internet this week of the the, the former owner of the WWF, Vince McMahon, getting around. Now, in the 2000s, he was grey. And in recent photos, he's got quite black hair. That's not how biology works. Mm -mm. 
No, that's naive optimism. Hope is a future certainty which at the present moment is invisible and yet to be obtained. My wonderful wife, Elise, is pregnant. And in August of this year, yeah, in August of this year, we get to meet our new child. That is the shape of hope. A future certainty which we are still awaiting the arrival of. The life to come, which has in one sense already begun, is yet to arrive in another. And that is the Christian hope. And the God of heaven and of earth who made all things is inviting you to share in this hope, to start now living your life in light of future certainties. That is what the apostle wants you to know about. He points out another thing about this hope. He says that this hope is for those who believe, the ones whom he calls the saints. If you want to have the hope that comes through Jesus, we are told very clearly that that hope is received by faith, by believing. Now, when we talk about that, belief doesn't just mean that I have accepted an idea with my mind, though that's certainly part of it. It means I have entrusted myself to Jesus as Savior and Lord. In the New Testament, salvation by faith in Jesus is contrasted against salvation by works, which is the idea that I have to do good things to make God like me, and maybe if I'm good enough, I can earn His respect. No, the message of Jesus is that if you want the hope of eternal life, you have to entrust yourself to Him and to receive it as a gift, as the fulfillment of His promise. That is where we receive the hope. And so God is calling us to a hope, a hope which is received by believing, and that belief all on its own is going to accomplish what it needs to in us to bring about certainty. But notice the source of this hope. Our hope is connected to the power of God. For those who believe, the promise is that God's power is toward us is the way it's phrased in my translation. That God's power is working for us. God is fighting on our behalf. He is at work, and the work He is doing is to rescue those who belong to Him, to bring to us the hope which He has called us to receive. Do you feel that? The immeasurable greatness of His power, which is toward us who believe. That's what it says. The immeasurable greatness of His power. Doesn't it need to be? I want to hold on to the hope that Jesus brings, and yet is there not so much fodder for despair in this life? There's a problem. The world that we live in is in quite the state. I don't know if you've noticed. We are not living in optimistic times. 
There's a lot of evil in the world. There has seemed, uh, from, at least from my perspective, to have been a, a general increase in the kind of hardship which we all face in recent years, all over the planet. And if we were to narrowly focus in just on our own culture, what do we see in regards to God? People are increasingly at each other. We've never been more divided. And faith has fallen on hard times. In popular culture, a shift has occurred. Uh, in the world that I was born into, not that long ago, I don't think, faith was ridiculed. It was foolish. It was a bit silly. Maybe it was old-fashioned. But things have shifted. Increasingly, our faith is being represented not as foolish, but as immoral. You are evil to believe the Bible. Quote it in public and see what happens to you. You believe what God says about how I should live? That's despicable. It's backwards. It's dangerous. It's harmful to others, we are told. It is becoming scandalous to live God's way. Christianity has increasingly been pushed out of the public sphere. It's no longer work welcome in certain polite spaces. That, that trend has yet to reach full bloom here as a certainty, and yet the trajectory is not good. The, the government of our day seems to worship the cult of death from ancient times. They are using law to further enable the evils of abortion and suicide and war, calling those goods, whilst using that same law to oppose Christian witness and prayer and education. We want to see God build his kingdom, including here, but it kind of feels like God's kingdom isn't coming, it's receding. It can kind of seem like death is winning, can't it? If Jesus is going to make all things new, if he is going to rescue us from captivity to sin and its effects, if he is going to be able to deliver on the hope that he is calling us to, it's going to take something more than naive optimism. What it's, going to, what it's going to need is for Jesus to be able to deliver on his promises against all opposition. He has got some battles to fight. It's going to take might to accomplish that. Not ours, his. So what do we know about this immeasurable greatness of his power toward us? Look at this reminder, as it is so kindly unpacked for us. What we see in this passage is that the immeasurable greatness of God's power, which is toward us who believe, is also the great power which raised Jesus from the dead. In accordance with the working of his great might, 
that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Do you see the connection? The power which is bent toward our ultimate blessing is the same power which raised Jesus from the dead. The resurrection of the Christ is the display of God's might. Do you know who it is that we worship? The moment of God's greatest victory over his enemies is through the cross and the resurrection, the thing that looked like the greatest defeat to ever take place. And if the defeat of our God is his greatest victory, then what do his victories look like? Jesus was dead, and now he is alive. Death no longer has dominion over him. Jesus carried in his body the weight of sin. He suffered the penalty of my sin fully and finally, and he took it to the grave. And then he got up again. Death could not hold him down. Because through the working of his great might, God raised him from the dead. And that means that he, our God, has defeated Satan and sin and ultimately death. Death is dead, for he is risen. I didn't see that coming, that was great. The battles that are left for our God to fight are but mere aftershocks. The war is over. Do you understand? That's what today is about. (laughs) The outrage against God in our day is the spasms of a dying regime. Do you know this power of God? Are you familiar with it? Do you know who we worship? And do you trust him? The power of God has not just raised Jesus from the dead, do you understand? No, 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 no. That's the first thing he did. Keep reading. He has done so much more than this. In our faith, we spend a lot of time considering Jesus during his incarnation. There's a good reason for that. When Jesus was was walking on the earth as a man, that's what we mean by his incarnation, when he took on flesh. Because that's... That's the beginning of the story. The incarnation is what makes Jesus accessible to our understanding. It's the point where we can be introduced to God and begin to comprehend who it is that we are learning about. The incarnation is where the atonement happens, and so it's essential and central to our understanding. But when you and I meet this Jesus, who we read about in the Gospels, He will not be meek and mild and riding on a donkey. That was a moment in time. And today, Jesus is alive and well, and the Bible presents to us this risen and glorified Lord in a very different light. If you are picturing him as he is now, If you want to know the one who is calling you to share in his hope, then there's some things you need to know about our Jesus. The power of God did not simply raise him from the dead. God has also seated him 
at his right hand in the heavenly places. In ancient times, the right hand was a place of authority and rule. To sit at the king's right hand was reserved for the most powerful person in the land. And for him to not just be at God's right hand, but seated. Seated at the right hand of the Father. Means that Jesus' work is finished. There's nothing left for him to do. He doesn't need to be standing on the battlefield in order to win the victory. The victory is already won. Jesus is not a mere moral teacher, whom we might like to consider his philosophy. He is the risen Lord, seated at the Father's right hand. Not only that, but God has placed him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Think of a name, a powerful name. Someone who wields authority. Jesus' name is above every name that is named. Actually, that's the one that got the early Christians in trouble. This, this, this was dangerous talk when this was written. Talk like this is what made the Christians a credible threat to Rome. Something motivated them to throw them to the lions, right? The threat to Rome was not that Christians were mere political revolutionaries trying to create a new nation. That's not the threat. Jesus told Pilate before his crucifixion, my kingdom is not of this world, and if that were not true, my followers would be taking up swords. That's not the kingdom of Jesus. If you're thinking about that, you're thinking too small. No, the kingdom of Jesus is that every nation, every earthly kingdom comes under the rule and the reign of King Jesus. The rule and reign of our God is that every single earthly ruler owes him fealty and will one day be placed beneath him and held to account. There is an authority which is over every earthly authority and he will have his way whether they believe in him or not. He is over every rule. He is over every authority. He is over every power. He is over every dominion. He is above every name that is named. Let me take it further. Not only in this age but also in the one to come. The authorities in our day who think that they can ban him will one day meet him and see their foolishness and experience its consequences. Jesus doesn't just rule and reign now, but rather... He rules and reigns forever. Nero demanded that he be worshipped like a god. Jesus actually is God. And Nero learnt that the hard way. 
this power of God, which has raised Jesus from, a de- from the dead and seated him at his right hand and placed him over every rule and dominion and power and authority, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, has now put all things under his feet. This is the resurrection of the Christ. In the Great Commission, Jesus appears to the disciples and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. Kind of like how Muhammad Ali spoke, isn't it? Except there's no exaggeration. There's no bravado. This is who our God is. And so we turn again to where we began. We turn to this hope to which we have been called. I want you to know the hope to which you have been called, says the apostle. What is it? It's not wishful thinking. It's a certain hope because it depends on him who lives and on the working of his great might. And because of who he is, our hope is certain and secure. If you entrust yourself to Jesus to give you his eternal hope, circumstances can't take that from you. Poverty and illness cannot rob you from his hand. People cannot overrule him in your life. Authorities can't take this from you. And time itself cannot take it from you. Death can't take your hope for those in Christ. He's risen. He's risen in Jesus. And so all who entrust themselves to Jesus carry this hope with us wherever we go, whenever we go. Do you know this hope? God wants you to know it. He is calling you to it. He is speaking your name and saying, come to me and receive this kind of hope. Hope of forgiveness. Hope of reconciliation with your creator. Hope of life beyond death. Hope of of a new world made perfect. Hope that the victory is his and none can snatch you from his hand. So go to him and get it. Let's pray. It is our joy to worship you this morning, King Jesus. Not as one option among many, (laughs) but of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess you are Lord. Thank you for letting us know that we will all stand before you face to face and give an account. Thank you, Jesus, that because of what you have done, 
that day, that, that day will be, for those who have trusted in you, a glorious day of reconciliation, of vindication. It is our hope. And thank you, Jesus, that for those who stand against your rule and your reign and who oppress your people, that that will be a day of vindication. Father, the, the battles of our time, the, they're bigger than us. We can't do it. We can't make this world new. We can't even make ourselves new. But the one who is seated at the Father's right hand, uh, behold, he is making all things new. And so we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Would we trust in you? Would you give us faith to believe you? Would you wake us up from the delusion that we can oppose you? Would you show us your mercy and your grace in place of your judgment? For who can stand against you? You are the risen and glorified Lord, and you are worthy of all praise.